The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin episode number 28. I am Tom Valentino. I'm joined, as always, by Travis Uli. We are recording on Tuesday night. Trav, how you doing? Good, Tina. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Uh, had a very uh, interesting weekend with the uh, NFL draft and uh, some uh, uh, interesting picks, I suppose, with the Browns. We'll have plenty to get into there, but uh, first, I figured we should probably uh, dive into the Cavs. Um, Atlanta Hawks here, round two, game one last night, uh, raced out to the 18-point lead in the third quarter, looked like they were going to kind of put it away, and lo and behold, Atlanta um, actually took the lead in the fourth before the Cavs kind of put the hammer down. Um, what did you take away from that game? Um, Yeah, they came out a little better than I think I expected. I think most of us expected possibly they come out a little bit flat. Um, I think for sharp as they, um, as they seem to come out and as I guess not strong as Atlanta looked out of the gate. Uh, I think we probably thought we should have been a more at the half, especially, um, I think it was a 10 point lead at halftime, maybe, um, ultimately it was kind of frustrating to see him cough up the lead, but also encouraging to see them deal with it, I guess, if that makes sense. You know what was really wild about that whole swing in the late third quarter was as soon as they went up by 18 points, um, I said, all right, they got this thing locked down uh, in good shape. I I could duck away for a couple minutes. I actually went and changed my daughter's diaper. And if you're ever wondering how quickly a lead can evaporate, it is in one diaper change because all of a sudden I came back and it was the end of the third quarter and I could hear the game in the other room and... I'm listening and I'm not hearing any cheering from the crowd. I'm like, that sounds kind of odd. And I come back in and lo and behold, it's, uh, it was down to five. And then once we found out that, uh, the, the Channing Fry three was actually a two, it was uh, down to four points. So, um, I, I was shocked that, uh, Atlanta was able to turn that game around because I got no sense that in that entire game leading up to that point that they were going to do that. Cause like, I know the Cavs hadn't really um, buried them to that point, but I, I just kind of felt like that entire game, the Cavs were in total control and it just really made a U-turn there uh, late third quarter. Yeah, it was, it was strange. I didn't really, I, I don't know. It sort of just seemed to happen out of nowhere because truthfully, I didn't think we were, I didn't think we were being outplayed by that much. Um, there was just a, a couple like small runs. It seemed like that they, they fired out maybe seven points in a row, stuff like that, where they chipped away at it in chunks, but it was, it was almost like you didn't really see it coming. Then all of a sudden, no shit, it's a four point game. Um, so I, I guess ultimately Dennis Schroeder is going to make five threes. Then you're going to live with that. And that's sort of what they've, been content with or they'll say we're not going to let Corver go off and kill us they took Teague fairly out of the game last night and they're like if this if this career I don't know 30 percent three-point shooter ends up beating us that's what we'll live with and uh like clockwork he regressed back to the mean and 
missed a couple wide open shots late that allowed the Cavs to pull away with it. The Cavs game plan that uh, series opener last night really in some ways reminded me a little bit of what Golden State did to the Cavs in game four of the finals last year. Um, if you'll remember, the Cavs had gone up two to one and towards the end of the third game, the Warriors kind of figured something out, made a, a lineup change and stuck with it um, going into game four. And that was the first game in that series where they started what we now kind of call their uh, lineup of death with uh, all small where uh, Draymond plays the center and then they moved Iguodala into the starting lineup. And they basically told the Cavs in that series, you're not letting, we're, we're not going to let LeBron beat us. That's your best weapon. We're not, if your role players can pull a rabbit out of a hat, so be it. And, you know, you look back at that game and I, I pull up the box score just to see if my memory was right on this. And, you know, LeBron in that game um, shot seven of 22, but uh, Mozgov, uh, went for 28 points and the Cavs ended up losing by uh, uh, 21. So it was one of those things where they said, we're going to let Mozgov shoot all day. And you could see the Cavs doing really the same thing with Schroeder last night. Um, I got a little agitated after about four or five of those threes went in. It was just like, all right, how many times are you going to go under the screen uh, up top? You know, you got to maybe want to start challenging him a little bit, but um, you know, the Cavs credit, they had a game plan. And it was, we're not going to let uh, Horford or Teague or Corver um, beat us. And, I mean, you mentioned Corver first. That was the one that I was just really amazed by. Because, I mean, it wasn't even like he had a bad shooting night. He had a no-shooting night. He uh, he had one field goal attempt for the entire game. Which Yeah, um, it was that, weird. I mean, I don't know how... I feel like at some point, if you're Atlanta, especially early on, and I mean... I guess looking back, they didn't actually need to do it. But when they had those big deficits, you'd you'd think they would have started uh, drawing up plays to get him some looks um, and and sort of force it to him. Um, that's what I would have expected. They didn't do it, and it turned out they didn't really need to do it um, because they. I mean, they did, like you said, they took the they took the lead late in the fourth. Um, Cavs were able to pull away after that, but the Cavs stuck by the game plan and ended up paying off for him. They're like, Hey, this guy's not going to keep making them keep giving them to him. And they did. I mean, yeah, like you said, I was a little frustrated because he was still hitting them and you, you kind of think, Hey, you're this leads disappearing pretty quickly. Um, you might want to close on him and they didn't, they stayed, they stayed true to what they were doing and they just expected the, uh, like I said, the regression to mean there that he would stop hitting those looks and, and it worked out pretty well. You know, it was interesting to me after the game, I think some of the reporters were asking LeBron about that. And he started talking about, you know, there's a game within a game and, and we had a game plan and it was a good game plan. And he really seemed to stick up for Ty Lue and uh, Brian Windhurst um, of ESPN this morning said, uh, I think he tweeted this even that um, this is the most public support uh, he's ever seen LeBron give a head coach and it do you agree that it certainly seems like even LeBron I mean it starts with LeBron but just kind of all the way down through the roster um just a level of buy-in that we haven't really seen uh, in terms of the players to the coach with, with this uh with this team yeah I think so um I feel like near the end of his time this is probably his fourth season in Miami you saw him uh probably come around a little more on um, 
Spolstra, but at that time they'd already won two championships, so it wasn't exactly obviously it wasn't the same situation. Um, but certainly since he's been back, it's been uh, a pretty drastic turnaround over the last I don't know a couple weeks or so, probably maybe since the playoffs started, maybe a little bit even before that, where yeah he is more a little more outspoken and a little more complimentary of his coach than you maybe have heard him be in the past and I I hope it's all like sometimes I feel like he he you know he he says these things that he thinks he's supposed to say um and I don't know that I totally believe them sometimes but if they are all on the same page and all looking at things uh from that perspective and in agreement on that then I think that's amazing and great moving forward I feel like Lou got a lot of um, a, a, a lot of buy-in, and, and he earned uh, quite a bit of respect with the way he handled the first-round series against Detroit. Because I really thought Stan Van Gundy came up with a good game plan to get the most out of his team, and um, Lou really had an answer for just about everything. And having superior talents obviously going to help that, but I mean had something gone wrong or had the Cavs actually gotten stretched out to five six, or six games, maybe um, even with superior talent, that wouldn't have been the first time. I mean, they've gotten beaten in series in the past when they had the better lineup. Yeah. Um, I guess so. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if much was really going to be taken from last series. If they had maybe lost one game, I don't know that much would have changed if it was six and they were losing games, they shouldn't lose. And, just looking bad doing it, I could see that being an issue. But I think like we kind of agreed with that first series, Detroit kind of played a little bit above themselves uh, for a majority of that time. So it wasn't necessarily that the Cavs weren't playing well. It was just that Detroit was playing a lot better than we expected them to. Um, as far as, as far as Lou goes, everybody seems to be in agreement right now that, you know, they like what their game plan is. They like where they're going. They, they're all sort of on the same page, and they all seem to know their roles. So as far as where they are, I think you have to be pretty happy with where they are as a team five games into the playoffs. The only remaining undefeated team in the playoffs. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, that, uh, that counts for something. You know, everybody um, wants to kind of fret over the Cavs, and I know that – whoever they're going to see in the finals, assuming they get there, it's going to be a mountain of a task. But um, I've been really impressed with the Cavs so far in the playoffs, and, and I was impressed with the way they closed last night. And, I mean, you're into a second-round series uh, here in the in the Eastern Conference. And, I mean, for as much as the Cavs have beaten up on the Hawks the last few years, um, especially now in the playoffs, I think um, going back to oh nine, the Cavs are now nine and zero in playoff games against Atlanta. Um, that is a good team over there, and uh, they are the second best defensive team in the regular season. Um, d- during the regular season, that is, and I mean the Cavs came out last night and they had a thirty point quarter to open the game, a thirty point quarter to close the game, and they shot forty four percent from the field, forty eight percent from three. Um, I mean that was a really impressive offensive performance for the Cavs. I thought. I'll say the one thing that I've noticed the most, and it's going to sound sort of like a backhanded compliment. Um, but what I honestly, what I liked the most about last night was Kevin Love was shooting like shit and he was still 
sprinting down the floor, working really hard, which a lot of times when we've seen his offensive game not working, he's kind of hung his head and, uh, you know, kind of just gone through the motions. Um, he still ended with 17 and 11, but he was 4 of 17 from the field. His shots were just not falling. Um, but he didn't go away from it. He didn't quit like we've seen him in the past. Um, and I don't I don't want to use the word quit like that harshly. But just in general, when his shot hasn't been falling, he's gotten a little more passive. Um, I don't think that was an issue last night, and it, it paid off a lot. He had a couple huge threes at the end um, to stretch the game out and uh, extend that lead for the Cavs. So seeing him not, you know, hang his head and, and give up and the sort of things that we've maybe seen from him in the past. And I don't, like I said, I don't like to throw that, that quit word out or say that he wasn't trying hard before, but um, when his shots haven't fallen in his offense, hasn't been uh, as productive as he had hoped in the past, he's kind of relegated himself to a little less active participant. In the Disengaged. Just, exactly. Um, and not seeing him do that, I think, was encouraging as well. And even on defense, he had a couple couple series there where we saw him play a little better defense than we're maybe accustomed to. Yeah, I don't think he's gotten um, uh, any of those horrific uh, lowlights defensively where you might have seen in the past where he's getting, I can remember the one during the regular season that it was just like, I mean, somebody like put a circle on him or a spot shadow or something. It was like, who is he trying to be guarding here? Because he was just completely lost in no man's land. And it was, I mean, some of it was just the scheme breaking down around him, but um, it was a mess. And, uh, I don't know, knock on wood, he, he has not had that happen so far here. And yeah, I think Kyrie Irving's another guy that uh, gets a lot of, uh, of flack for his defense. And I think there was a huge initial, block last night. He had that huge block last night at the end of the game. And, you know, the other thing was with Schroeder going off, I mean, um, I think it was David Zabak of uh, Fear the Sword. Uh, came up with the stats this morning. Most of that damage that Schroeder did was not with Kyrie guarding him. Yeah, it's funny. Kyrie's sort of the scapegoat anytime any guard goes off against yeah. the Cavs. Yeah, everybody just automatically assumes. Kyrie, exactly. And yeah, if you actually looked at it, the numbers don't actually support that. So that's good. And I also, like like we kind of said, they were, they were letting Schroeder take those open threes. If he, you know, if he misses a couple more of those like he normally would, um, it wasn't like he was blowing by guys and getting to the basket. Um, so they were sort of, they were willing to live with what he was going to do. Um, and yeah, like you said, Kyrie, not nearly as incompetent on defenses as maybe people like to think. He's picked a very good time to get adequate. The other thing, just looking ahead here, I mean, we're going to be rolling into game two on Wednesday night. Um what are you expecting from Atlanta in terms of adjustments? Personally, I just, I can't imagine uh, come hell or high water. I, I just, they're going to find a way to get Kyle Korver some shots. Yeah, you'd think they have to, but you would have, I don't know. I feel like you would have thought that before. And for whatever reason, the Cavs have just had a ton of luck keeping him not, um, not involved in the game. Now it's not like, it's not like he's been a huge score. He's only he's averaging under ten a game this year, so it's not like um, it's a huge uh, decrease in production from what he's been doing. Um, I was a little surprised to see that his scoring was down that much, but um, 
so I really, how much more can they expect from him? Can they expect that much more than he's given them all season? I don't know. I don't think so. But you would have to think that, yeah, they're going to have to get him involved because when he's, uh, when he's getting open looks and, and whatnot, he, uh, he really is, uh, I mean, he's sort of the weapon they need to keep, uh, just to sort of set up their entire offense, keep that spacing and allow, uh, like Teague and Schroeders and those types of guys to get near the basket. Um, Horford's also been a shell of himself on this team. Like he's completely ineffective against the Cavs. I'm not sure how they're able to get him so out of the game for what they do on Corver. I feel like they're even more effective on Horford. Yeah. Horford. I mean, he, he was um, involved in the offense last night. He, uh, four of 13 from the floor and Millsap was the other one, although um, his, uh, his troubles against the Cavs have been well chronicled. Um, in the past, and again, I mean, I had Millsap last night finished with 17, but I mean, he, he it shot was a quiet 17. Yeah, and he shot six of 19 from the floor, so that's a pretty inefficient 17 points. I'll tell you who was incredibly efficient was Tristan Thompson last night. Sure was. That guy's just turned into an animal. For all any jokes you want to make about that contract that he got, uh, he's he's laughing and he's earning it right now. Um, whatever he did in the regular season, if he shows up in the playoffs like he did last night, uh, you could sit him for 82 games for all I care and just play him in uh, May and June for that. He was all over the place, grabbing every loose ball, out hustling everybody, and completely neutralizing Horford and um, Millsap. So for what, for what he is on this team, um, I mean, he is fourth or fifth guy probably at best um not a big offensive threat not really um gonna fill up a stat sheet anywhere but rebounds but he does everything you want that guy to do and he does it all incredibly well yeah 14 rebounds last night um I mean, that's the thing i know people like you said might kind of scratch their head at him getting 82 million dollars or whatever it was last summer but i mean he's earning that contract in the playoffs because it's a different kind of game and the skill set that he brings, it's things that you need, and it's absolutely critical. Um, and it really it gives the Cavs a lot of flexibility. I mean, look, they've got, especially when you're looking at their, their starting lineup now with Tristan in there, they've got four scorers around him. They don't need scoring out of that center position. They need somebody that can body up guys in the post, that can pull down rebounds. Um, Not be a liability on a switch where he's stuck guarding a guard. Exactly. And and he like, brings that's the thing. You have to think about the alternative. If if it's him or Mozgov, um, you can't play Mozgov thirty five minutes like no. you did Tristan. No way. Um, and I think the other thing, which we don't know this for sure, but we're all pretty sure that once the salary cap changes, that eighty two million is not going to be nearly as glaring as it was last last year. Completely agree. Um, and I, I would suspect that throughout the remainder of this series and beyond, he's going to continue to be a very integral piece for the Cavs. Um, speaking of integral pieces, the uh, the Browns, let's, uh, well, before we get on to the Browns, anything else about the Cavs you want to throw in? No, I mean, you you asked what I should, ex- what I expect from Atlanta. Truthfully, I expect more of the same. I honestly just feel like the Cavs are a terrible matchup for them. Um, not only in personnel, but just in uh, game plan style of play and quite frankly the mental aspect of it I don't think Atlanta thinks they can beat the Cavs you saw last night um, Teague hit a hit a jumper and he was 
backpedaling down the court saying not this year to uh, the Cavs, and I don't <laughs> think he believes it. I know that Al Horford doesn't believe it, the way that he shoots the ball, um, the way that he's active. Um, Millsap, I, I think he might be the only guy that, that they're not in the head of, and Schroeder obviously is just too young and dumb to know any better, <laughs> um, which good for him to his credit. But um, I just think the Cavs are completely in Atlanta's head, and I don't see any way that – I don't think it's an adjustment thing. I don't think it's what they're doing. It's just – I mean, they got some good looks last night, and they just don't shoot the ball well. They don't really do much of anything well against the Cavs, and they did go on a little run and make it make it a much closer game than it should have been. But in the end, I feel like they got widely outplayed by the Cavs for all but maybe 10 minutes. The final margin of 11 points – feels pretty representative of how that game played out. Yeah, I mean, the Cavs were definitely considerably better than Atlanta for a vast majority of the game. Yes, they got it to a one-point game by going on a short spurt that just completely knocked the Cavs out. Um, But they got back up and stretched it back and and did what we sort of expected it to be. I I don't think any (laughs) middle of the fourth, I don't think anyone saw it covering the seven and a half, and by the end, it, it looked pretty easy. Definitely. All right, so integral pieces. We've got uh, 14 new players um, drafted by the Browns uh, over the course of the three days of the NFL draft, starting with uh, wide receiver Corey Coleman out of uh, Baylor, and he was one of five wideouts the Browns took. Um, It was an interesting approach to the draft for this new regime for the club. What did you take away from uh, how the Browns uh, drafted this weekend? Going into the draft, there were only really a couple guys that I wanted at eight that I wanted them to consider taking at eight. And if those guys weren't there, I wanted them to trade out. Um, Those were Bosa, Buckner, Ramsey. Um, An hour before the draft, I was okay with Tunsil. (laughs) Obviously, that changed a little bit. Um, And none of those guys were there at that point. So the fact I was sitting there and I didn't want him to reach on someone. Um, and Tunsil pretty much seemed untouchable at that point. Um, so I was I was comfortable with them trading down. I liked that they got some assets, and then they were able to get their um, the top receiver on their board. I don't know if I don't know if I agree that Coleman is the best receiver, but the fact that they had a board of wide receivers, they knew who theirs was, and were able to make this trade and still get that guy that they wanted. I think they they mastered the first round in terms of. I mean, we're used to seeing them trade down, and I think some, most people are probably a little sick of it at this point. But overall, um, with what they had and what they had to choose from at eight especially, um, I'm good with it. I like how they handled the first round especially. Were you surprised they were able to pull off a trade at eight and able to still move down? A little bit, yeah. I, did, I, I didn't see uh, – I don't know why exactly Tennessee wanted to move up. Um, it's kind of funny because I thought for sure going in, they would have killed for Tunsil and what happened with him. Um, I mean, they, obviously when they were moved down to 15, they didn't expect to still be able to get up there for him. But, um, the fact that they were able to move back up there and they went with Conklin, I thought was surprising. Um, I, I think, I, I think I like what they got for it. I think they got enough to make it worth it. Um, I'm always on the fence about that, and I didn't even honestly look. I know they have those uh, draft value charts that they use. Um, I'm not sure how this graded out for the Browns on that. 
I have to think that they probably came out ahead, but uh, they had a ton of picks. They got a ton of players. I'm surprised they got so many. I really expected them to package a couple of those picks and try to move up again in one of the later rounds, maybe package a couple fourths to get back in the third or something like that. But uh, they used them all, and they got 14 rookies. Obviously, I don't think all of them are going to make the team, but uh, – they got a lot, and they got a lot of receivers. So yeah, how about that? I I thought that was kind of crazy. That uh, you know, we, we've heard the joke from people just given the Browns' struggles at quarterback. They've uh, you know, I've seen some people throw out the the crazy scenario of taking a quarterback in every single round and hoping that one of them actually hits and turns out to be your uh, long term solution at quarterback. And it kind of uh, seems like the Browns did a scaled down version of that at wideout. I mean, they obviously knew they needed wide receivers. Um, and they went in and drafted five of them. Yeah, and I'm not sure, like, I'm not crazy about some of them, and a couple of them, like, I always have a problem when you hear a guy, they're like, oh, they got this receiver, he's fast, but he can't catch the football. Um, <laughs> One of them, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, and I'm drawing a blank at the moment, what they're talking about might have to be a uh, converted to cornerback. So it's, I guess that's fine if they know that. Um, I did like the, uh, Richard Higgins pick. I thought he was a steal in the fifth. Um, anybody that's nicknamed Hollywood, uh, automatically gets a thumbs up (laughs) for me. Hollywood Higgins is a great name. It is a great name. And he's, I mean, he's got the potential to be, uh, pretty good. They think, I mean, he played in Colorado state, obviously not a, not a big time program, but, uh, it was a fairly pro style system. Um, and they, I actually heard someone say he might be the most uh, pro-ready guy they have. So, which is kind of surprising considering they took the first wide receiver off the board. Um, but he, I have to think that he knows what he's going to do with the guy. So, if if that turns out to be the case, and he turns out to be a decent contributor, that's a great pick at, at uh, in the end of the fifth round. Um, and I'll be honest, I was shocked with like six or seven picks when I saw six or seven picks left when Scooby Wright's name popped up because I had no idea he was even still on the board. Right. He seemed like one of those guys that someone would have taken in like the sixth round just because it's incredibly productive in college. I did notice that as well. A lot of these guys that they drafted were numbers guys, which might play into the analytics. Yes. Um, more than one person observed that um, the Browns draft board in retrospect seemed to align very closely with uh, pro football focus, which is a, a very, uh, I, I believe that's an analytics driven um, ranking service. Uh, so to, to see that it, it, the numbers and, and the results of the draft would certainly seem to uh, 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 lend credence to that theory. That they're putting a lot of stock into that, yeah, for sure. Um, are we in agreement that the most surprising pick was Kessler? Yes, absolutely. That that was one I wanted to ask you about, just for a few reasons. I I don't. I mean, I to be honest, I wasn't really uh, studying up on receivers or uh, uh, quarterbacks projected to go in the middle rounds, but um, there were some quarterbacks who got an awful lot of discussion before the draft that uh, were still there when he came off the board to the Browns. Yeah. When we went to bed on Thursday, a lot of people were saying, you know, or the, or the Browns are going to be interested in uh, Connor cook. 
with that first pick of the second the following day. And I think we all expected him to be off the board, if not to the Browns fairly early. He ended up going in the fourth, um, plummeting way below what anyone expected of him. Uh, it seems like that happens every year, though, of those like three or four big names that everyone likes um, after the first round. One of them always ends up, you know, everyone always seems to expect like, oh, yeah, these three or four guys will be going real early. And one of them always isn't. Um, but overall, I don't know. I guess if they like uh, if they really like Kessler that much. OK. And I, I do like that uh, Hugh Jackson came out and said, hey, uh, you might think this, but you just got to trust me. And you never hear that. <laughs> you, never, you never hear a guy that that comes out and says, yeah, this might not be the most obvious pick. I get that. Um, but you know what? I know what I'm doing. Usually they have some weird justification behind it, or they just avoid answering the question altogether. That was some refreshing honesty and, and confidence shown by Hugh in that press conference. I, I did think that was pretty impressive. Uh, just getting back to Connor Cook, um, like you said, I mean, a lot of people thought that he might go with the Browns first pick in the second round. I, I know there were some uh, beat writers, no names please, that uh, were even advocating for the Browns trading back into the first round for him. And it just really, the whole thing kind of got me thinking a lot about the way that we talk about the draft and the way that people uh, and reporters cover the draft and all the hype that leads up to it. And I know we did not spend a ton of time on the podcast leading up to it. I know we did our last one um, right before the draft. We talked about it some, but um, not a huge percentage of our time. And I got to thinking, like, did we kind of miss the boat on that? Um, I, I don't feel bad about that in retrospect. I Just because I feel like there are a lot of angles that are a lot more interesting um, that just really are, are not necessarily based in reality what what you see play out on draft day. And, uh, you know, there was more than one scout that said, like, Connor Cook was a media creation. I don't totally agree with that. Um, you, you look at what he was able to accomplish in college and what Michigan State did with him winning uh, or with him leading the team at uh, uh, under center there for three years. Um, I know he wasn't a team captain, and that obviously uh, had to have been a strike against him. But, I mean, he played well there. And and they were a very successful program, but um... yeah, I mean his his numbers are pretty damn good. And I mean they're not they're not Baylor numbers, they're not TCU numbers, they're not like Texas Tech or one of those you know ones where you put up fifty touchdowns and five thousand yards or whatever the case is. But he's very effective. They were clearly still probably a run first team, um, and he put up really good numbers really high rating for three years in a row. He's a three-year starter, won a ton of games. Um, so a lot of stuff that you usually think, um, despite this whole, I, I kind of think the whole captain thing is a little overblown, honestly, but um, that is what it is. People kept talking about that like it was, you know, a huge deal breaker. There's a lot of guys that get drafted every year that aren't captains. I guess when you're the quarterback, they expect different, but um overall his 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 record in college was pretty damn good and I didn't really expect him to fall that far really on anything because I think measurables wise I think he's he's pretty strong as well I don't think he's one of those guys that just doesn't have NFL ability so I'm not even sure why 
I'm still not sure why he fell that far. I honestly think the Raiders just took him because they're going to play him all preseason and see if someone wants to trade for him. See, that's the thing, though. Like, you and I are both in agreement. Like, we're not really sure why he fell that far. And to me, it's like, this is the what I, I want to be reading, like, ahead of time. And instead, we are getting the, these fantasy land scenarios that end up having no basis in reality on draft night. Um, I mean, he was the most glaring example, but I mean, there was a lot of talk about Cardale uh, coming out of Ohio State. And I don't think anybody realistically expected him to go in the first round, um, but I also don't think anybody expected him to go after Cody Kessler. Um, and, and the other one was, you know, getting back to Corey Coleman, I mean, I know we were talking and there was a lot of talk about how much the Browns needed wide receivers. I didn't hear his name linked to the Browns at all before the draft. Did you? No, not really. Um, It's sort of, well, in fairness, going into the draft, we all thought the Browns were going to be drafting eight. So most weren't thinking receiver. I did find it strange that everyone was thinking, um, Treadwell was going to be the guy and he ended up being I think the fifth wide receiver off the board or the fourth um yeah fourth sorry to Minnesota um I didn't see I was shocked that Fuller went second um everyone was saying Treadwell will be first and then it could be Doxon or Coleman and then Fuller after that and I think Mike Thomas was was near there the order of the guys it's surprising how how different they actually went off the board um, but no, I'm with you. I didn't hear anyone saying that there were some people that said, Hey, if they trade down, get a, get a receiver. But I've heard very few people say trade down and get Corey Coleman. Yeah. I think that's just ultimately the thing that frustrates me with all the talk leading up to the draft every year is that there are so many guys that get talked about and, and it's always fun for listeners to think about all these different guys coming to their team. And what you end up actually getting on draft day, like how often do you actually end up with one of those players? Like I can remember the year where I think it was Mangini's first year here where they they traded. I mean, it was just endless speculation as to who they were going to take because they had a top five pick and they ended up their first pick, I think, ended up being was that the Alex Mack draft like mid 20s? That sounds right. I want to say like 24 ish, maybe, but I'm not totally sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I'll, I'll say the one thing I found funny all season during the regular season, we heard, um, especially going into the beginning of last season, it was Bosa or Kim DJ was going to be number one. And then Bosa kind of stayed up as the regular season went on. He stayed in that number one spot and Kim DJ sort of regressed and a couple other guys came up and everything. But Bosa was pretty steady. And then after the bull season, for the the next like three to four months for whatever reason, Bosa kept dropping on these draft lists and everyone's like, well, you know, this guy jumped ahead of him. He didn't do it. Some weird, uh, shuttle or whatever the hell, you know, he didn't do some workout as well as people expected him to and whatever the case is. And so he was dropping down. I saw some, I mean, there were mock drafts that had him going like 12 to 15, (laughs) which was unheard of. And then come draft day, yeah, he goes right where we expected him to. Obviously, the first two teams took quarterbacks, so that sort of skewed that a little bit. But he really was, I mean, he was the first non-quarterback off the board, and it it was like, well, this was sort of what we expected all along. Why did we talk ourselves out of this? Yeah, those first two teams that that drafted quarterbacks 
mortgage their futures to move up to get those guys. So they both felt like it was an extremely glaring need uh, to go out and get a quarterback at all costs. I think a lot of that with L.A. is truthfully just, hey, he's a California guy. We're going into this new market where we need to get new fans. I think if that was um, – if I think if the Rams were staying in St. Louis, they would never have made that trade. Uh, I mean, it, it certainly fits. It, it helps that um, Goff's case for getting drafted there. Oh, I, I agree with that. I think Goff was the best quarterback, and he was worth it. But I'm not sure that the, the Rams would have been willing to give up that much if they didn't have – um, a very strong need to generate some some attention and publicity. Do you think some of that might have been on uh, some pressure on that Rams front office and, and Jeff Fisher as their coach? Because, I mean, he's been there for quite a few years now, and I still don't think they've had a 500 record. Mr. 8 and 8, Jeff Fisher? Yeah, I, I mean, he, yeah, hasn't, he hasn't gotten over 500 there yet. No, I mean, he's... That's sort of his whole career, though. I mean, if you go look, I, I'd be interested. He had those handful of years, I want to say three or four years, in Tennessee where he was really good and had 12, 13, 14 win seasons probably. But I'm looking at it now, and since 2008, he went 13 and 3 in 2008 with Tennessee. Since then, he's gone at 8, 6, 7, 7, 6, and 7 wins. And so, I'm pretty sure that 13 and three team lost their first playoff game. Yeah, they lost in the uh, divisional game to Baltimore. Um, and I mean, he went 10 and six before that. He had a couple crap seasons mixed in in between, but yeah, he had a couple of good years. He made it to a Super Bowl, and he's pretty much been riding that ever since. Um, that's not to say he's a bad coach, but I don't think like does anyone ever expect him to win a Super Bowl now? Like, do, do you ever expect him to get you to? 13 wins again I feel like that ship's kind of sailed and he's sort of you know just going through the motions at this point doing the same thing that he's always done even though it's not really going to get them where they want to go well getting a top overall quarterback in the draft is certainly a good way to buy yourself an extra couple of years because now you can sell your your upper management on the need to develop the guy that you traded for so we'll see yeah I think so we'll see I I'll be honest I I think Goff was the guy, and I think, again, we hear this, seems like, all the time, uh, especially with quarterbacks. I think they would have been nuts to go with Wentz. There was a lot of folks saying, like, oh, building up to the draft, there was not an insubstantial number, like a, a decent number of people that said they thought Wentz was the guy over Goff, and I'm not sure who, who or why anyone thought that, and... I think the Eagles are probably going to regret it way more than the Rams did. I would agree with that. And I think the, the Wentz hype trade was another function of radio airwaves with too much time to fill. Yeah. And I th I'm, I'm incredibly glad the Browns were able to get so much for that guy. Cause if they stayed there, I'm not sure they would have taken Wentz, but there's a good chance that they would have. And I think for what they got, they, We'll look back on this in a couple of years and think that they did great. That's the thing for me is that um, it's all going to depend ultimately, like any other draft, how these players actually end up performing. But yeah. knowing the number of holes that the Browns needed to fill and knowing that you weren't going to solve all your problems in one draft, given the position that they were in both with the second pick and then when they traded down to the eighth pick, 
and knowing who was off the board in front of them, uh, I, I just I felt like they really did as good of a job as you could possibly hope for maximizing the value of those two positions to stockpile both extra picks in the middle rounds for this year and then especially up towards the top of the draft for the next couple of years. Yeah, I think they, they they came in knowing that they needed depth and acknowledging that this is not going to happen next year. Um, I don't know if we'll hear them admit that yet, but <laughs> I think everyone understands this is going to be a couple years of, honestly, you might see the same thing next year. If they can't get a quarterback, you'll probably see them trade down again. Um, and try to add depth as opposed to just get one guy, which it hasn't worked in previous regimes. But I think, I don't know, are you with me? It, it, this this regime, regime feels different than past ones have. Obviously, the way they're doing things is different. But overall, the competency seems higher. And I think I have more confidence in them than I've had in probably anyone else since the Browns came back. They have not done anything to this point to make me feel otherwise. And the obvious caveat there is we haven't seen any games on the field yet. So talk to me again in December when we're looking at a, a two and 11 team. Yep. But um, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. Um, I, so, I mean, we'll see. I, I'll tell you this, that what uh, just looking down the road and because it's never too early to start looking at mock drafts. Of course, the day after this year's draft wrapped up, I saw the first mock draft for next year put out and I didn't even look at the players that were in those positions but I was just looking at which teams would be drafting where and would you believe they had the Browns picking number one overall and they had the Browns picking number two overall thanks to the first round pick that they got from the Eagles if that would be incredible (laughs) if that would actually happen that would completely melt the local talk uh, talk show circuit and sports pages in this town for, oh, uh, for from January uh, until Insanity. late April. Insanity. Un- unprecedented, that would be. It would be. Um, yeah, I mean, that would be nuts. Even if, that's, even if that just ends up like a top five pick, um, you got to think that's great. And I'm not sure what – I'm not really sure what to expect from the Eagles next year. Who knows? I guess we'll find out, but – um, yeah, if that stays a fairly high pick, they look like, you know, that looks like highway robbery. Totally agree. All right. Any other thoughts on the Browns? Um, I don't not, not really. I guess, uh, I've heard a couple interviews this week. Seems like I like the guys that they've gotten. Um, they seem like decent guys they seem to have good heads on their shoulders. Um, I, I was listening to Rizzo today. He actually had a, an incredibly uncomfortable interview with um, Carl Nassib where Riz clearly had no idea, had done like no prep whatsoever. Well, I find that like, shocking. He, oh yeah, exactly. And then he gets off, he got off the interview with the kid and uh, he's like, you know, I had this, this computer's broken and I had this stuff on here. I'm like, you didn't do shit. You just jumped on the phone. You didn't think about anything like you always do. Like he always like blames someone else, but he was, he had the round that the kid went wrong. Um, he like was asking the kid about where, you know, the kids, he just got out of college and he was waiting for 
you know, a couple of weeks to figure out where he's going to move to live. And Riz is like, oh, yeah, you're living back at home. Don't worry about it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, he's not living at home. He's staying there because he's waiting to get hired for a job. Like, just the whole thing was a big mess. And it was kind of funny because the kid's sitting there and, he, you know, he's asking him a question. And he's got to correct this I mean, guy that potentially he could have to talk to very often. Um, but he's he's hearing these questions from this local guy who has no clue what he's talking about. He wants to just be like, just call me back like tomorrow. Go read up a little bit. Figure out what the hell you're talking about and let's try this again. And to his credit, he, he got through it um, probably better and more patiently than most people would have. But um I like it. I'm overall, I'm pleased with the draft. I think we'll probably see a couple of these guys fall out, but that's sort of the benefit of having 14 picks. I agree. And, um, you know, Hey, as for uh, good old uncle Riz, um, I guess maybe just uh, take some Jobies and try running it back tomorrow. Oh God, the Jobies get out of here with that. (laughs) Unbelievable. It's so, uh, God, I listen to some of the shit that they've been peddling lately and it just, it cracks me up. Uh, They got, oh, the newest one they added is a uh, pawn shop. Oh. Pawn shop downtown. So, you know, if you're, if you're low on cash and need to hawk some goods, get on down to, I don't even know what it's called, but it's funny. They'll, God, they'll show anything. Hey, if the check clears. (laughs) That's that's funny. I was talking (laughs) to someone today and they were like, are they really? pimping a pawn shop i was like if they if the check clears rizzo will talk about it tomorrow it doesn't matter what it is folks i gotta tell you this is the if you really need to go <laughs> oh oh boy all right i think that's a... this place i've never been there but i've heard it's great and they pay us so they gotta be great oh hey i'm, I'm back downtown now every day so maybe i'll uh, have to take a walk at lunchtime and go check there it out for myself all right. Well, hey, listen, um, on that note, I, I, I do want to just throw out a, a quick mention here. I don't normally uh, go outside of the realm of uh, our normal uh, subjects here, but um, I, I, I did start a new uh, day job this week. So, uh, yeah, yeah it, uh, it's exciting. Uh, two days of the books now, and, it, and it's been off to a really great start. Um, working with a company called uh, the Vendome Group. It's a media company. Um, got an office uh, downtown there, um, right next to the Clevelander, and across the street from uh, uh, the old uh, Winking Lizard. And I can look out and see Progressive Field from our windows, and it's pretty cool. But um, just uh, the, the reason I, I wanted to mention that was um, just for everybody, I, I think most people know, but for those who don't, um, when we started this podcast, um, that was the week that uh, I had wrapped things up with my last job, and it was... Uh, under some rather quick circumstances and um, happened on a Monday and Travis and I have been talking for quite a while about giving this podcast thing a try and um, I reached out to him on a Tuesday um, the day after um, I, I, I left the uh, the other company there and I said listen um, if we're serious about doing this podcast thing I want to make it happen um, let, let's give it a shot. Um, it's now or never for me. I mean, I'm never going to have more time to, to really invest in this. Let, let's give it a go. What do you think? And, you know, Trav, I, I've told you thank you for this in the past. But um, I just wanted to say uh, again on here, I, I really appreciate you taking the leap because um, the, by that Friday, we were able to put up our first episode. And um, 
it's been a hell of a lot of fun doing this over the past six months. And, um, you know, it's gonna be kind of a new normal for me, just trying to adjust to, uh, you know, having the, the daytime, uh, full schedule again. But, uh, you know, I have every intention of keeping this thing going and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see where we go. Yeah. That makes two of us. I mean, to those listening at home, they can probably tell that first we had no idea what we we're doing and <laughs> I'm not sure that that's necessarily changed yet, but, um, it's been a lot of fun. I think we found more of a groove in terms of, um, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself paying attention just randomly throughout the day and noticing things in my head, um, that I probably didn't like think twice about before that were sort of points that I'd want to mention or, uh, interesting perspectives, even if it's stuff that I maybe heard someone else say things that just kind of maybe went in one ear and out the other before where, um, having this sort of medium to get on and bullshit for an hour every week. Um, it's, it, it seems silly, honestly, looking at it and, and what we're actually doing, but it's a lot of fun and it gives me, you know, a little, a little extra, uh, I don't know, something to do. And it, it really changes sort of how I pay attention to sports, I think in general, which in the past I've, I've paid a lot of attention to, but I think I'm a little even more critical about it than I was in the past. And I think, uh, the fact that you were able to definitely do all the, uh, legwork, uh, in, into the behind the scenes stuff that admittedly I'm not particularly sharp on. And you really jumped right in and figured it all out and been awesome about working together on it. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're back at work, but, uh, I like what we've got going so far and I look forward to, uh, continuing it. Excellent. You know, I, uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. There it is. That's <laughs> it. All right. Well, um, as we get out of here, the usual reminders, you can catch all of our episodes at the nail podcast.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter, uh, at the nail podcast, uh, like us on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash the nail podcast, put up a, a little poll question there, um, leading into the draft and, uh, had, uh, some other fun stuff we're going to try to throw on there every now and then to, uh, just to keep that page going. Um, and, oh, I, I did not mention this last week, I don't think, but, um, in addition to iTunes where you can always subscribe, if you're an Android user and you're somebody that uses Google play music, um, they've got the podcast up and running on there now. So you could subscribe on uh, the Google play music app as well. So one more way to, uh, keep up with the show. Seriously, if you're not, if you're still listening and you haven't subscribed yet, what, like, what's the, why are you still here? Amen, brother. All right, well, we will be back at it next week. Uh, entirely possible that the Cavs and Hawks could be wrapped up by then because yeah, uh, game four is on Sunday. So I, I don't envision a, a pod between now and Sunday. So we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, I think that'll do it for us. So for Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino. This has been The Nail in the Coffin, and we will talk to you again next week. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access. 